Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 29. A tale of two mountains. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear that you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that I lost my place indicates the removal of all of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God. Our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this is uh, the morning of the tale of two mountains. If you want to title that, that would probably be a fair title. The tale of two mountains. Beloved, for 12 chapters. And I don't know how many months I've lost count. The author of Hebrews has been trying to persuade you of the excellency of Jesus Christ. That is his main goal. He wants your eyes on Jesus and the majesty and glory of who he is. And because of his excellence that this author has been trying to persuade you for for 12 months or 12, sorry, 12 chapters. Maybe it's been 12 months too, I don't know. He has also been exhorting you to never give up. To press on. William Lane in his uh, terrific commentary on Hebrews says, quote, the purpose of Hebrews is to strengthen, encourage, and exhort the tired and weary members of a local congregation to respond with courage and vitality instead of unbelief and apathy. So what the author has done, in other words, for 12 chapters is he's raised Jesus up before your eyes. He's spoken to you about the excellency of Jesus Christ, His majesty in the Gospel. And he says, fix your eyes on Him. Consider Him in the Gospel for your sake and all that He is for Himself and for you. And now because of that majesty, and now because of that excellency, run your race and never give up. 
That's the point of this book. And our text today is the author's last attempt to convince you that Jesus is better than you can ever imagine and therefore you need to press on. In other words, chapter 13 is nothing but, uh, I shouldn't say nothing but. You should never say that when you're talking about Scripture, I suppose. Chapter 13 has particular exhortations. There you go. Particular exhortations to the believer how we live this life. But chapter 12 is his last attempt to persuade you that Jesus Christ is best and you need to press on. You need to press on. So what the author does here, let me just give you the outline as we begin in his closing statement, so to speak, is to take you to the foot of two mountains, okay? So there you are as a believer, and you are at the foot of two mountains. Have that image in your mind as you listen today. and As you follow along, boys and girls, you are at the foot of two mountains. And there is one mountain called the mountain of the law, And the other mountain is the mountain of the gospel. He spends most of his time at the mountain of the gospel and the implications of being at that mountain. And so he says to this early Christian church, and he says to you, the author does, okay, you're thinking about giving up, huh? About trading in Jesus as Esau did for a bowl of oatmeal? Right, for worldly things of this life? Is that what you're thinking about doing? All right, well, I'm going to take you to two mountains, and I want you to tell me at the end which mountain you want. All right, that's the author's point today. So, let's go. The tale of two mountains. First, the mountain of the law. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness, in gloom, in a tempest, in the sound of a trumpet, in a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the author brings us to the foot of Sinai. So the author has gone to the law. And he says, this is what life is like outside of Christ. You want to go back to this? This is what it is. It's terrifying. Everything about this mountain, the author says, the fire, the darkness, the storm screams, God is unapproachable. You touch this mountain, you die. And that's what you want to go back to? 
You want to give up on the Christian life and go back to this? You want to place yourself under a covenant of works again? Why would you do that? Why would you trade Jesus in for the things of the world as Esau did when this is what you get? Fear. Terror. God is unapproachable. And I imagine in a room this size, there are some who are thinking about trading it all in. This Christian life is too constricting. It's too constraining. I want to be free. I want to be free. And to live without constraint again. Oh, that life was so good. And now there's this Christian thing with all these rules. And I got to behave a certain way. Enough with this Christian thing. I want to go back to the law. You might be thinking, man, life was not that bad back then. And the author wants to warn you, beloved, don't go back. Don't trade it in. Don't go back to the mountain of the law. Don't meet God outside of Christ. Don't trade him in for the sparkling, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson from last week, for the sparkling toys and bubbles of this world that will disappear. Don't trade him in all that this world is in, in one sense is makeup on a corpse. Oh no, don't go back to the life under the law where God is terrifying where you have to live up to expectations you can't meet and guilt is constantly before you. Don't go back to this way of life. Don't go back to the mountain of the law. There's no freedom there, he says. All that you have is bondage and guilt and sin. You can't approach God. Don't trade it in. It's not worth it. That's the mountain of the law. Don't do it. Secondly, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here, he brings us to the mountain of the gospel. Verse 22. But, so, you have not come to what may be touched Mount Zion cannot be touched. We learned in Sunday school. There are realities that are undiscernible to our senses. Mount Zion is one of them. You have not come to what may be touched, but, skip ahead to verse 22, all of, so the mountain of the law was a massive parenthetical statement, in other words. You have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering, 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I should see smiles all across this room. That's the mountain you've come to. The mountain of the gospel. In contrast to Mount Sinai, the law where God was unapproachable and terrifying. Mount Zion, the gospel, God is approachable. And not just approachable, God is wonderfully beautiful. When you come to God by faith in Christ, beloved, you come to six beautiful pleasures. And I use the word pleasures because they are real pleasures unlike what this world gives you that are fleeting and passing. All right? So I got six. Six pleasures that the gospel of Mount Zion gives you. All right? So is your pen ready? Pleasure number one. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the author, I gave my hint away when I brought up Ian's lecture. The author is not talking about the earthly Mount Zion that was outside Jerusalem. He's talking about, look at it. Don't look at my face. Look at your Bibles. He's talking about the heavenly Mount Zion. You cannot touch it. You cannot feel it. And you cannot see it. But it is as real as the chair you are sitting in. It is heaven. The Zion, which in Psalm 125.1 says, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. This is what you have come to, Christian. Past tense. It's not just a place you'll go to one day, but you have come to it already. The immovable heavenly city of the living God. That's a wonderful pleasure. And I think it has massive implications about what happens today at this hour. When you walk through those double doors, in the words of R.C. Sproul, you cross the threshold from common to holy. I know it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. But the author is saying you come to worship. The Holy Spirit brings you up into Mount Zion. So that Christian worship happens simultaneously on earth and in heaven. (laughs) That's what we're doing today. What we do today is holy. 
we actually enter into heaven itself in this hour. That's amazing. Do you see how the questions about coming to church just fall like meat off the bone? Should I come to church? Maybe I should be online. We got friends coming over later this afternoon. Maybe I should stay home and get the house ready. Co-worker gave me Bronco tickets. Maybe I should go to the game. And the author of Hebrews is saying, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You have the opportunity to enter into heaven itself, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you want to stay home because of a sniffle? No, 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 no. You come to church and you join into heaven itself in worship. So pleasure number one, you've come to heaven. Pleasure number two, I think these will get quicker. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. My angelology needs some work, but this is what I know this is saying. Living beside us in heaven are thousands upon thousands of angels. The phrase festal gathering refers to the feasts God appointed to Israel. And it was at these feasts where God's people were gathered all as one people to celebrate God as their king. So, having come to the gospel mountain, you gather not only into heaven, but you gather with the angels above. How about that? Though undiscernible to the senses, we gather with the angels above to celebrate the triumph of Mount Zion. What do the angels sing? <laughs> Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So what do we do today? This is a feast day. We have a meal prepared for you. There is singing. There is God's Word. There is praying. What a day of celebration. Why would you miss it? It's a day where you're entering into heaven and joining angels above to sing to the king of our souls. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So you've come to the host of heaven, pleasure number two, and you've come into heaven. Pleasure number three, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? You've come to the church of Christ. Here's what that means. 
whose names are written in heaven yet are still living on earth. You've come to God's elect. You've come into a family. You've come, in other words, to the universal lower sea Catholic church. We are not Roman Catholic here. When we say the Nicene Creed, it's with a small c, which means universal. So, the author is saying you've been adopted by the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus Christ, the preeminent one. And he's given you brothers and sisters, the text says, in Asia, in Europe, in Africa, in the Middle East, in South America, who together under one head are making disciples and preaching the gospel to the glory of the triune God. So again, when we come to worship, though undiscernible to our senses, we are gathering with all the brothers and sisters around the world and we are meeting with them, though they speak a different language and they sing in a different tongue, we are meeting with them to praise Jesus Christ. Pleasure number three, you've come to the church universal. Pleasure number four, you've come to God, the judge of all. Well, that seems odd. That seems like the mountain of the law. This doesn't seem like a pleasure at first. The judge of all. Well, put yourself in the place of these early Christians. They've been assaulted and they've been mistreated. Injustice has been a way of life. And they're starting to wonder, perhaps some of you have, is God's long-suffering, His indifference to sin? What's up with that? I don't see God as the judge of all. We're like Malachi. Where is the God of justice? But you're telling me at the, at the gospel mountain, God is judge of all? One of the joys of the gospel mountain is that God is the judge of all now and forever. And he will right every wrong before whom nothing is hidden and before whom all will appear. And I probably know what you're thinking right about now as I was studying this text. Yes, someday justice will drop, but surely not now. But isn't it the fact that God is judge why sloth results in poverty? Isn't it true that God is judge why promiscuity results in disease, ruin of the family? Why pride leads to recklessness? Why drunkenness leads to loss of health? ruined relationships, and death. What are these? But the outworking of God's justice through His natural law in this natural world. Exceptions are many, but they too will be judged. Beloved, let us not trifle to such a God. 
His long-suffering is not His indifference to sin. Let us take comfort in the judge of all. Pleasure number four, you've come to God. Pleasure number five, you've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to all the people of God from every age who, though absent from the body, are present with the Lord. So you've come to the church triumphant. They're in heaven. And you've come to them when you worship. They finish their race. They've run through the tape, to use the sports analogy. And now they enjoy the reward of God as presence forever. So think of Lady Jane Grey and Jim Elliot. You are in their presence this morning. Think of R.C. Sproul and St. Augustine. Think of Anne Steele and Thomas Goodwin. Think of B.B. Warfield and uh, Karen Proctor. What a crew, huh? What a crew. The Gospel Mountain gives you people to cheer you on in your race. Pleasure number five, you've come to the church triumphant. And lastly, pleasure number six, you've come to Jesus, he says. The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the author saves his best for last, doesn't he? He saves his best for last. You've come to Jesus, he says. You've come to the very radiance of the glory of God. 1-3. You've come to the heir of all things. Chapter 1, verse 2. You've come to the King eternal. Chapter 1, verse 12. You've come to the captain of our salvation. Chapter 2, verse 10. You've come to your elder brother. Chapter 2, verse 11. I love that phrase, elder brother. Older brothers protect and defend. I was, uh, just a note here, side note. I was in the sixth grade and there was a bully who was going to beat me up the next day at school if I showed up. And he called to make sure I was going to show up the next day for school. And my oldest brother took the phone and says, if you lay a hand on my younger brother, I will come find you and I will hurt you. That's an older brother. And Jesus is our elder brother. He defends us. He protects us. Don't lay a hand on my family. You will not win. I will destroy you. Don't touch my family. He's come, you've come to the apostle of our confession, chapter 3, verse 1. You've come to your new rest, praise God, chapter 4, verse 9. You've come to the source of eternal salvation, chapter 5, verse 9. You've come to the true minister, chapter 8, verse 2. Our elders are incredible, but they are not Jesus Christ. He is your true minister. 
You've come to the designer and builder of a better city, chapter 11, verse 10. You've come to the perfecter of your faith, chapter 12, verse 2. You've come to the victorious Savior, chapter 12, verse 2. You've come to the mediator for sinners, chapter 12, verse 24. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Praise God, we have him. And you've come finally, the author says, to the crucified Lamb. whose blood cries out, not for punishment, as Abel's did. Abel's blood cried out, vengeance, vengeance, repay, repay. Christ's blood does not cry out for punishment as Abel's did, but for pardon for sinners. He saves His best for last. You've come to Jesus. And Jesus is better than anything you can imagine on this world. So let me ask you, what mountain do you want? The mountain of the law? Where nothing is ever good enough? Your life is never good enough with the law. The law screams at you, do, do, do. You want to get to God? Perform, perform, perform. And the gospel mountain says, done, done, done. Christ, Christ, Christ. If you are here today, And your life sounds, I need to perform more and more and more. You have not come to the gospel mountain and enjoyed all of these pleasures it has for you. Look to Christ and enjoy what he has given you in the gospel. And then from that solid righteousness you have in Christ that cannot be moved, it is as steady as heaven. From there we live, but not before that. Not before that. Done, done, done. Come to the gospel mountain. Give up on self. I know that's not American, and I don't care. Give up on self and give up on trying to live and be better. You can't. That's why we have Christ. In the gospel. And from that truth, we live not under a burden, but with joy. But with joy. May you cast yourself on him today. So two mountains, I hope you choose the gospel mountain. That's where I'm headed up. Or maybe... Theologically speaking, that's where it's coming down to me. All right. Let's add some application, shall we? Three points of application, then we'll be done. Three points in light of what we've said. One, uh, listen to God. Listen to God. Verse 25 to 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, 
much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook, shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. I grew up in California, and we often heard about the big one. So we did earthquake, earthquake drills. You hide under your desk, and some of you are from California thinking, yep, I remember those days. The big one was coming, and the fault lines were going to clash, and California was going to be decimated. Towns were going to be ruined. Maybe those who lived outside of California heard about the big one too. I don't know. This is what we heard often. Well, the author says the big one is coming. The big one is coming. And it's going to shake not only the earth and California. It's going to shake the entire world. Powers of the heavens, Jesus said, will fall. And the stars of the sky will fall. And Jesus says, I'm coming again. Are you ready? Listen to Jesus Christ, he says today. See that you do not refuse the king of Glory, the big one is coming. Listen to God. Two, be grateful to God. Be grateful to God. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The author says, look at all that you have to be thankful for. Look at these pleasures. Look at this gospel mountain. Take it all in. Be grateful to God. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Nothing will move this mountain of the gospel. Rome fell. Babylon fell. Persia fell. Greece fell. But not the kingdom of God. It's an everlasting kingdom that is established forever on the back and shoulders of the bloody crucified Christ. He will reign forever. Be grateful to God. We're not part of those kingdoms that fall like America once will. The bottom is coming out, by the way. I don't know when, but it will come out. Three, offer to God acceptable worship. Offer to God acceptable worship. Verse 28. Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's a serious problem in the church today, in my opinion. I want to be uh, rightfully polemical here. Maybe say persuasive. People assume God is someone we can cuddle up to and do whatever we want with. I was in college when the t-shirts came out, uh, or high school, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. And I wasn't even a Christian, and I said, I think that's wrong. <laughs> Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia was more on the mark when he portrayed God as a mighty lion, right? Drawing upon Lewis's metaphor, we could say that meeting with God in worship is like coming face to face with a mighty lion. He's not 
safe, but he is what? He's good. That's right. He's good. Jonathan uh, Cruz, perhaps, he says, if we had that picture in mind, we would be less prone to worship thoughtlessly or nonchalantly. As Aslan reminds us, while God is powerful, he is also abundantly good. Having come to the gospel mountain through Jesus, we need not be terrified by God's presence. Absolutely amazing. He's consumed his son at the cross, and now we enjoy him forevermore. Furthermore, we have every reason to believe that if we heed God's commands, it will go well with us as we meet with God in a dialogue of worship. That's what we do when we worship. Have you noticed that, our dialogue? In our worship, our liturgy, Robert does a great job. We dialogue with God. It's a word from God, a word from his, uh, from his word, and then we respond. It's a word from God, and then we respond. We're in a dialogue with God every single Sunday morning. Why would you miss it? If it is true that in worship we meet with God, then it's God who runs the meeting. You and I don't. Robert doesn't. God runs liturgy. Worship, unlike food or clothes, is not a matter of taste. Do I want contemporary worship? Do I want hymns? It doesn't matter to you. It's not a matter of taste. It is a matter of acceptability to God. So what is acceptable worship? Let me just list three quick points and I will be done. Number one, it is God word, never human word. Let us offer to God. So God word, never human word. Number two, it is regulated by God's word. We must do those things that the Bible commands and not do those things the Bible forbids. You can ask Nadab and Abihu and Uzziah. What are these things we are to do? We are to preach, 2 Timothy 4. We are to pray, Acts 2. We are to break bread, Acts 2. We are to read scripture, Colossians 4. We are to sing, Ephesians 5. We are to give gifts to the needs of the church, Acts 6. We are to have a public confession of faith, 1 Timothy 6. Confession of sin, 1 John 2. Fellowship, Acts 2. It is through these elements whereby God promises to meet you and bless you and to speak with you. You want God to talk to you? Come to worship. Come to worship. This is where he meets you. This is where he speaks to you. And we do it with reverence and full of awe, full of amazement, full of joy, full of wonder, full of awe. I almost clapped today. I hope we can do that at this church. Why? We celebrate. Reverent. But awe full of joy, full of gladness. We should be happy we're here. We should be joyful. Let us pray. Our great God and King, thank you for the gospel mountain. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. We ask, O God, that you would bless us as we meet with you each and every day. And we expect to be blessed as we worship you according to your word. What a beautiful day it is. It is the queen of days, they said, those Puritans. The queen of days. Amen to that. Thank you, Lord, for creating this day. We get six. You have one. May this day be the queen of days in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.